You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things travel and now on to the show with your host from Christchurch New Zealand Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch Welcome, travellers, to the very first episode of Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Chris Lynch. And I'm Mike Yardley. We're coming to you from Christchurch, New Zealand, where each fortnight a fresh episode of Kiwi Tripsters will drop, loaded up with first-hand travel tips, insights and experiences from around New Zealand and the world. And we'll have some cool giveaways too, so it's great to have you along for the ride. It is, but given this is our debut episode, and Mike in particular is such a frequent flyer, travel junkie, I want to start things off with you, Mike, because you've got an amazing background. Tell me about your passion for travel, because there's no one destination you probably haven't been to. Well, there's plenty actually, Chris. <laughs> really? The world's still a big place, Chris. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, I do, suppose- you remember when, do you remember when your fascination with flying first took hold? Yeah, I think I was eight, and... Uh, in Christchurch, where I grew up, on a northwesterly day, aircraft flying into Christchurch would fly right over my house with the northwesterly blowing. And I used to watch these planes as an eight-year-old thinking, gee, it would be so cool to know where that plane has come from um, and whether it's on time, because I've always been a stickler for punctuality. So I took it upon myself to memorise the Air New Zealand domestic timetable, thinking (laughs) it would be such a cool trick to be able to impress my friends by telling them exactly what aircraft that was, where it had come from, and whether it was running to schedule. Did they care? No, they all thought I was rather weird. In fact, that really has been the story of my life. But um, (laughs) I thought it was quite a clever trick. My parents thought it was rather precocious. They saw a future for me, uh, memorising timetables. But, I mean, looking back at it, it absolutely was probably the first signs for me that I had this fascination with aviation, with travel, adventure, the world beyond. And, um, yeah, that's really where I could say it hatched. I would take the mickey out of you for saying that, but I won't because I actually remember when I was a kid, I used to have a police radio, a police scanner. It didn't just pick up emergency services. It would actually pick up aircraft flying over my head. Yes. So when an aircraft would fly over on a Saturday or Sunday, I'd get up there on the shed and listen to the pilots talking to air traffic control. I was fascinated by that. It was a really fascinating thing. But then I think I was a little bit jealous because I wasn't involved. I wasn't a passenger on that plane. Oh, and you wanted to be there. Yeah, I wanted yes, to be in there. in the engine room, in the yeah. cockpit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, I didn't actually take my first overseas trip until I was 13. And, I mean, I sure, like most people, I'd taken a few domestic flights, but I do so distinctly recall that first ever overseas trip and it was to Sydney in 1985, and to me that was sort of like this great achievement to finally fly international. And um, it was actually with Qantas from Recollection, and there were these piggyback airfares that were being offered back in the day where an adult could fly 
for $799 Christchurch, Sydney return, and um, uh, their companion uh, flew for 99 bucks. So it was $900 for two people, which back then was a good deal, but it's amazing when you look at it now, you could easily get a return fare to Australia for $400 a person. Um, all these years later, with inflation, we really do have incredibly affordable air travel. Yeah, we do. Which is probably why, unlike perhaps our generation growing up, today's generation of kids are far more likely to take an overseas trip before they turn 10 than, you know, when we were 8, 9, 10-year-olds. Apparently two-thirds of New Zealand children will have taken at least one overseas trip by the time they turn 10. I was always jealous when I'd hear people, some of my friends, yeah. when I was in my teens, they would tell me they'd been to such and such place. I think, wow, they've been halfway around the world. I mean, the first place I went to for my 18th birthday yeah. was Brisbane. Mm -hmm. And back then, Brisbane was the bar scene of Australia. Yes, it it was. wasn't Melbourne and it wasn't Sydney, it was Brisbane. But mm. now, uh, you don't really hear much about Brisbane. It just does its thing and, and you know... They've tried to pitch themselves as uh, a world city, but I, I think that's perhaps a little bit ambitious. The amazing thing is, though, how your perceptions change, because I'm sure back then, when you first went to Brisbane, it did strike you as a big bustling city. Yeah. You know, compared to, compared to Christchurch or even Auckland. I remember when I first went to Sydney in 85, it struck me as like the metropolis of the world. It was like the New York of... Um, the Southern Hemisphere of the South Pacific. Yet now, it just feels like a sort of a, like another neighbourhood New Zealand city, doesn't it? There isn't that sort of great sense of international glamour about going there now. No, I'll give you that, but I still love Sydney. Yeah. I can still do a, a lovely three-day weekend in Sydney and still feel refreshed and feel like I've had a mini break, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What about Brisbane? Um, have you been back to Brisbane to reminisce on your first trip you No, know, I haven't. No, I haven't. Mm -hmm. In fact, after Brisbane, I went to Melbourne to see a couple of pop acts, but I haven't yes. been back since. Was Brittany in Melbourne? No, uh, oh. Beyonce was, but that's another story well, uh, for another day. Yes. Uh, we would love to hear about your first overseas experience because it really does shape you and your next experiences. Like, for example, how old were you? Uh, where did you go? Uh, let us know. Let us have some feedback from you. We'd yeah. love to know. And no matter how recent that first overseas trip was, or perhaps it was decades ago, do you remember the price of your very first airfare on an international flight? Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Coming up, it is the season, so we will dip into the best Christmas markets in Europe. So, Mike, you are a Christmas tragic from way back. You've got your tree up. In fact, you put your tree up on the 1st of November. But I, I don't mind. I don't mind. I think actually that, that's quite cool. I'm ready for Christmas, actually. But mm -hmm. I know that you've been to so many Christmas markets in Europe. How many millions and millions of people go to these markets every year? You've been to a few. I've been to a few, although it's incredible just what a mega magnet these markets are. Last yeah. year, over 400 million people visited one of Europe's big Christmas markets. Over 400 million. So wow. traditions abound, Chris, and uh, I think a market mooch around these traditional markets is absolutely a surefire way to get you into the Christmas spirit. So maybe it's a bit late to, you know, to do it this year, but make plans for 12 months from now because these markets generally will burst into life in the third week of November, and uh, you can get your full of the markets and zip home 
well in time for a Kiwi Christmas or a Christmas wherever you happen to live. Uh, in fact, I have found um, when I've uh, been over there checking out the markets that they tend to be more manageable in late November than mid-December, you know, just mm. because of the sheer weight of numbers of people that will um, bombard these markets. Is Germany still the market king, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Germany, uh, Germany alone, last year, there were over 100 million visitors uh, to their markets, which far exceeds their national population. I've done Munich's Christmas market a couple of times. It is absolutely superb. It's wrapped around uh, their main market square called Marienplatz, uh, where people go and see the Glockenspiel in Munich. Mm. Um, and that that is Germany's oldest Christmas market. It's been going since 1310 AD. And uh, one of the big draws is uh, the gingerbread treats, or Lebkuchen, as the Germans call it. You, you will not taste better gingerbread than in Munich. Um, obviously, Glühwein, very, very popular across Germany, sort of um, their equivalent of what we call mulled wine. Yeah. Um, and Bavarian decorations um, are a really big buy uh, in Munich. Then you've got the world's biggest Christmas market up the road in Nuremberg. And another really good German Christmas market to, to check out is Frankfurt. Uh, absolutely superb. Once again, set in uh, the old market square in Frankfurt. And the interesting thing about all of the German markets is all of the merch, you know, all of the mm. handicrafts, they are all religiously locally made. It is so strictly enforced that if you, for example, um, get some genuine fakes made in China, <laughs> then bring them into your stall in a German Christmas market. If you have found out you are banned indefinitely from ever trading at a German Christmas market. So Santa does not have much chance to outsource his workshop to China in Germany. I like that. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. That yeah, seems I a really so. nice message. What is the oldest Christmas market, though? Well, it's a good question. Vienna, and there is some yeah. contention over this. Vienna, uh, they are uh, staking their claim to the bauble because they have been holding a December market since 1294 AD, continuously, nonstop, every year, ever since. And their main market is strung around City Hall, because Vienna is a city celebrated for its music, uh, that is part of the charm. You've got all of the cosy wooden chalets. They're really big into ciders in Austria, so apple and pear ciders, which they will then spice up at Christmas time. Um, and another really big um, magnet are the roaming festive choirs. Think, you know, Vienna Boys uh, Choir. And they'll roam the streets, um, singing their carols, amping up the atmos. And a little fun festive fact for you, Chris, about Vienna, they invented the snow globe, the Christmas snow globe that you'll see on people's mantelpieces. And I did not know that. Yeah. So it uh, was first invented in Vienna uh, in the late 19th century from recollection. Um, so, yeah, they've got um, plenty of attractions. And also in Austria... If you would like a market that is perhaps a bit more intimate, um, go to Salzburg because I think the Salzburg Christmas market is an absolute cracker. It um, obviously is the city of Mozart, so you've got that sort of music sort of underscore uh, mm. to, um, to the atmosphere at Salzburg. And um, Salzburg is also the city that gifted the world the song Silent Night. 
People rave, absolutely rave about Prague though, don't they? Yeah, and I think once again, it's that dreamy setting that um, provides so much magic to the Christmas markets in Prague. Old Town Square and Wenceslas Square, they, um, they both hold the Christmas market stalls. And, um, of course, Wenceslas Square is named after the good king himself. Um, so many distinctive market buys in Prague. Uh, a lot of people will swoon over the hand-carved bohemian crystal decorations, very expensive. Marionettes, really popular in Prague year-round, but great at Christmas time. And the glue vine, extra strong in Prague. Uh, apparently they spike it with so many secret spices that they won't <laughs> divulge the recipe. <laughs> hey, any sort of quirky offerings? Because sometimes some of those smaller markets yeah. that people don't often go to, but can often be the best. Indeed. A mate of mine went to, last year, a mountaintop Christmas market, uh, and he reckons it's a must-do. Maybe not as popular or as well-known, but this is in uh, Lucerne in Switzerland, Mount Pilatus, which is sort of like the remarkables of Lucerne, this beautiful mountain uh, backdropping the city. And um, the thing is, the markets are held right up on the summit of Mount Pilatus, the highest Christmas markets in Europe. You have to ride the world's steepest cogwheel railway to get to them. And after you've uh, done your market uh, shopping and feasted on goodies, you then make your return journey back down the mountain by sled or snow bike. Um, And their market is one of the first to open in Europe uh, in mid-November. Mid-November? Yeah. So, yeah, very early out of the starting blocks. Now, I'm liking all the sounds of these, but is there a way to kind of string it all together, though? Well, a lot of people are now opting for river cruising as a as a popular way to get around, an easy, effortless way to get around. It can be very pricey, though, uh, these uh, Christmas river cruise um, uh, deals for the markets. I, if you want to go for a more affordable option, would fly into Germany and from there stitch together some choice destinations like Prague and Vienna and hopscotch your way around by train. They're very short hops. And after all of that glue vine, Chris, you will be shining red like Rudolph. <laughs> and we will put some images up of all of these markets, including Mount Pilatus, on our Facebook page, Kiwi Tripsters. And feel free to give us uh, your own tips on great traditional Christmas markets that you have savoured in Europe. You're going to make me want to put up, put up my Christmas tree now, actually, finally. Excellent. Yes. Uh, listen, coming up, uh, Spotlight on New Zealand and a great all-year-round destination, Hemner Springs. Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. Abercrombie & Kent was born on safari in East Africa in the early 1960s. It's grown to become the world leader in luxury adventure travel. Now with 56 offices and more than 2,500 travel experts on the ground around the world, Abercrombie & Kent takes the world's most discerning travellers on exquisite journeys in more than 100 countries and all seven continents. This is luxury travel redefined, taking you out of your comfort zone in exquisite comfort on handcrafted, bespoke, private and small group journeys and luxury expedition cruises. Talk to your travel agent, call Abercrombie & Kent on 0800 441 638 or visit abercrombiekent.co.nz. 
As part of Kiwi Tripsters, we do intend spotlighting great New Zealand experiences, whether you're a Kiwi or an international visitor to our shores. In just 90 minutes from Christchurch, Hamner Springs is a fabulous alpine resort town that is well worth a visit at any time of the year. Chris, you're a huge fan of Hamner. What mm. do you like about it? Well, it's in driving distance from Christchurch, isn't it? It's about, what, an hour and a half yeah. away from the city, yeah. and it's the sort of place you can go for a long weekend. You're not going to get bored. You can either spend a day there, I reckon, or three days there, and there's there's enough to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are so many unique features and so much interesting history to Hemna, um, yeah. not only with respect to the pools, but also their signature hotel, which back in the day was known as The Lodge, is now, of course, known as uh, Heritage Hamner Springs. And that's been going, I don't know, for years, 87 years uh, of history at that hotel. The Red Cross actually took possession of it uh, during World War I, and a lot of soldiers returning from the war were um, given respite care at that hotel. In fact, when I first stayed there, I remember people saying it was haunted, and I do recall there were a few spooky experiences there, Chris. I think it's in your head, to be honest, Mike. Well, it might have but been. I, I want to say, and I say this sincerely, that Hemna, the actual brand across New Zealand, it's a real safe brand, isn't it? Because it when is. you go to any heritage hotel across yeah. New Zealand, you know you're not going to get ripped off. It's just, and it is quality. And that's what I like about the Hemna Springs um, Heritage Hotel. And also, well, I was going to say it's central, but Hemna Springs is pretty small, isn't it, though? But yeah. it is in walking distance with all your main attractions, including the pools, the bars. You've got the golf course next door. It's a, it's a good place. It is true. The the, uh, the property at Hamna, if you haven't seen it, um, it's very much a Spanish-inspired architecture. So mm. they've got like, these really large colonnades, big Moorish arches throughout the property, and a very lofty bell tower. And I tell you what, when I last stayed there, I was lucky because I stayed in room 213. And here's a top tip for you. If you go okay. to the Heritage Hamna, request room 213. This is not the haunted room, is it? Well, I actually wondered about that. <laughs> I thought maybe this is... <laughs> like the ghost's attic. But um, it's the deluxe guest room with a lounge and a balcony, and it's actually built into the bell tower. So you're absolutely at the top of the building with the most brilliant views across their incredible grounds uh, right in the heart of Hanma. It is nice. And also there you do have a good view of the famous conical Hill, don't you? Yeah. It's nice. And it's probably, um, in some ways, um, the must-do experience for a first-timer in Hanma to walk up Conical Hill, which is actually quite a hell of a workout, I have thought, when I've done it previously. It's pretty steep, but once again, magnificent view is your reward. But if you're lazy like me, yep. you can just drive around it and kind of beneath it on the other side is the beautiful Clarence River. And I reckon that's one of those secret places that, even locals don't know about because whenever I drive around there with my friends, mm. there's no one around. But it's a lovely, beautiful, traditional New Zealand scenic um, drive where you've got the lovely river, the mountains, and in the wintertime, it's just gorgeous. It looks like it's out of a movie. It really does. It's true. Yeah, it's got it's a nice. really fairy tale look to it, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, uh, the really big draw to Hanma Springs are the thermal pools. And incredibly, uh, the health spa as such at Hanma has been uh, operating since 1883 through this magnificent thermal water that bubbles up from deep down in the earth. Um, in fact, apparently it takes the water about 150 years to reach, you know, sort of ground level. 
Um, I so know that. Yeah, that's uh, what I recently heard from the pool's management. About 150 years old that water is. It's been bubbling away underneath the surface of the earth. Uh, but Hanmer Springs Thermal Pools, um, they've yes. always got incredible attractions for all ages. And, of course, yeah. their new attraction, Chris, is... Their Conigal Thrill. Yes. Taking the name, of course, of the famous hill. Conigal Hill, yeah. They've got the, um, the new Hydroslide. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Uh, I haven't done it. Mm-hmm. I just chose to sit in the and soak in the pools. Oh, you were a spectator. Friends. Yes, I was actually a spectator. <laughs> but it looks pretty cool. It looks really, really cool. But I want to say, you were talking about the spa before. Yeah. And I do like to be pampered. Um, you go on the spa, a little pricey, but you pay for what you get, you know? Yes. And I had the most amazing massage. And as you quite rightly know about me, I'm a little bit uptight, right? Yes. I um, woke up twice to my own snore. True story. During the spa? No, during the massage. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Was that's a good, is that a good thing? Was, what did the therapist say? Well, nothing. I just felt a little bit embarrassed and pretended I was <coughs> <coughs> like I was sort of coughing. But that's a true story. <laughs> and, yeah, a bit embarrassing. But anyway, so the spa there is really, really lovely yeah. too, by the yeah. way. Really They're nice. Absolutely premium treatment experiences are available at Hemner Springs Thermal Pools and Spa. And uh, that unfiltered mineral water, it is so soft and silky, isn't it, mm. when you give yourself a bit of a dip in the pools. Of course, don't dunk your head underwater because that's a meningitis threat with all these <laughs> sort of thermal waters. Yeah. Um, but an absolute um, unmissable experience. So um, if you are looking for a summer jaunt, um, Hanma Springs absolutely mm. should be on your agenda. And even if it's an overcast day, it's still a beautiful place to be. You're not going to get bored there because you'll either do the pools mm. or the bars and restaurants. And it's it's not sort of an overpriced touristy um, prices like you think they would be in a, a tourist village, which yeah. I like about Hemner Springs. So yeah. big up to Hemner. Just quickly on the uh, wilderness front, you've got amazing mountains, of course, all wrapped around Hemner Springs and fabulous forests. A lot of people will go there for the forest walks. Yes, but you, when you were last there, of course, discovered one of the new crazes, which has gone Gaga and Hemner. And that's, the, that's the Hemner Forest. That's the e-bikes. Yeah, Gee, I'm, the audience is going to think of me as some lazy, sloppy person that always takes the easy ride. I did. Got myself an e-mountain bike. Yes. And you kind of feel a little bit lazy because it's a beautiful forest. It's like just out of a Peter Jackson movie. And uh, when you get to the end, of course, you're not puffing because it's an e-bike. So you just sort of pedal a little way and then, you know, the power kicks and away you go. But anyway, uh, that is one thing you have to do. You have to do that. It's good fun. Fantastic. So Hanmer Springs, uh, a year-round destination, but certainly it is a fabulous uh, time to go over the summer in New Zealand. Up next, Chris. Up next, a special giveaway and what are the most mispronounced words on restaurant menus? That is next. We will very shortly give you our first opportunity for you to win our giveaway. So stick around if you want to be the debut winner on Kiwi Tripsters. <laughs> now, what are the most commonly mispronounced items on restaurant menus? Well, around the world, that is. The MasterChef TV show reckons they've identified the restaurant menu items that are the most mispronounced. Now, Mike, I know you're really excited about this little wee quiz on me, so away you go. Okay, uh, we'll see how... Um, savvy Chris's when it comes to restaurant menu items, particularly the foreign ones. Now, these Ooh. are items that have become very, very popular with travellers around the world, you know, when it comes to checking out local cuisine. They're very well known, uh, generally speaking. 
First one, how would you pronounce this, Chris? Mm. P-H-O. F. Fo. Well done. Uh, what's your first answer, please? I F. can only take one answer. F. F. As in the F sound, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well done. Thank well you. done. Now, interestingly, as I'm sure you know, this is the noodle soup uh, synonymous with Vietnamese cuisine. A lot of customers, when they're in Vietnam, think it is pronounced either pho or phu, but pho is the commonly accepted pronunciation. So what well, I win? Uh, you haven't won anything apart from the lounge suite, which is on hire. It's nice. Uh, righto, uh, let's try another one. We'll go Italian this time. Would you say ciabatta, sibata, or ciabatta? I would have thought sibata. Really? That's not on your list, is it? Sibata. Yeah. And uh, no, it is ciabatta. Oh. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Uh, <clears throat> apparently... The way it is mispronounced the most is chia butter. Chia okay. butter. But it is chi butter. Okay. okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> On a similar <laughs> front, uh, sticking with the Italians, uh, would you say bruschetta or bruschetta? Bruschetta. Bruschetta. Yes. Okay. Now, this is an interesting one because bruschetta is the name of the bread, which often comes with garlic, olive oil, and chopped tomatoes. So that is often mispronounced uh, bruschetta, but it should be bruschetta. And I'll tell you what, (laughs) Mary Berry gets that one wrong, Chris. Mary Berry, you know, the cook, the English cook. Does she? Mary Berry. She's got to go. Um, So, yeah, so if you're wanting the bread, it's bruschetta, not bruschetta, which is a dish. It's not the bread. Bruschetta is the bread. I'll have both, thank you. (laughs) Righto. Uh, Let's go. What's the biscuit called then I'm thinking of? There's a biscuit that sounds. Oh, that's biscotti. Okay, (laughs) Okay, forget it. Righto. Um, We'll go Spanish this time, and this is another huge offender. How would you say this, Chris? Would you say paella? Or paella. Paella. Well done. Thank you. You said that with some certainty, I yeah, detected. That's right. Well done, yes. Apparently the British are the most um, uh, prone to saying paella. Not that we're casting aspersions on the British. No, no. Okay. Would you say induja or induya? Induya. How do you know? Just because. Are you, is this a, just a, a confident guess? Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, it is into you. Uh, the spicy pork sausage from Italy, um, which often ends up as a pizza topping. Apparently it's a very popular pizza topping at the moment. Actually, the reason why I gave you that answer, because I thought it would be the first one, but I thought it's not, it's a trick question, so it'll be the second answer. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, very good. So yeah, it is into you, not into ja. Um, Okay, Greek. How do you pronounce this? G-Y-R-O. Oh, that would be gyro. <laughs> no. Or gyro? No, what is it? Gyro. Or gyro? Gyro. I'm locking in gyro. <laughs> That's your final answer? That's my final answer. And you're not finding a friend? No. Okay. It's actually pronounced yero. Okay. So this is like um, the Greek donut kebab, which you can often have in pita, you know, pita bread. So if you're over in the Greek islands, sunning yourself in Mykonos, you'll see this word everywhere because it's what most people just munch on all through the day. And it's yero, yero, 
G-Y-R-O-Yero. Okay, we'll do one last um, restaurant menu item. Chris, do you say chorizo or chorizo? Chorizo. That is your final answer. My final answer. I'm sorry, you've flunked that one as well. Uh, Now, this is the spicy Spanish sausage, which has also become a favourite topping on many dishes. It is pronounced chorizo. And once again, apparently, Mary Berry says chorizo incorrectly. I'm starting to feel like I like Mary Berry. I've got something in (laughs) common. A kindred spirit. (laughs) Hey, before we go, our friends at Lonely Planet have released their Best in Travel for 2020 guide, packed with some really cool tips and trending trip ideas. If you want to be in the draw for a copy, subscribe to or comment on this podcast and your feedback will instantly put you in the Lonely Planet draw. It's easy. Good luck. We'd love to hear from you. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on our premiere first podcast. We'd love to get your feedback on anything we've discussed or anything you would like us to discuss. Please don't hesitate to engage with Chris and I because travel is best shared and our show notes are listed as well. Plus, you can check out our website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. Thanks to Abercrombie and Kent, our sponsor, for making this podcast possible. And a new episode of Kiwi Tripsters will be released in a couple of weeks' time. We'd love for you to, to uh, subscribe to our channel and if you haven't already do, uh, done that please do that and on the next episode we'll include some tips on taking on the classics of Las Vegas as a first timer one of my favourite cities in the world it certainly and is and no, I'm not a cheesy person thank you <laughs> we aren't casting aspersions <laughs> by the way we will also check out the royal residences in Britain from the House of Windsor that you can actually stay in which is you know, a pretty uh, pretty sexy proposition, you know, on the Airbnb front. Not that they're actually listed on Airbnb. We'll catch <laughs> you in a fortnight. Until then, travel well. See you soon. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. 